Amen. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We are continuing our way through the text this morning. Matthew chapter 8. You know, Jesus is worshipped by millions of people around the world. And he certainly lived and walked among us at a period of time in which there were very great examples of faith. But today we're going to look at an account of a centurion whose faith was so strong that it even made Jesus marvel. He was amazed at this person's faith. And so as we look at this text this morning, I just want you to have it in your mind. What kind of a faith is it that Jesus is looking for? We're going to pick it up verse 5, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. It says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion he said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we, Lord, we know you're real. We know you are real. And we know, Lord, that you are in the midst of us, that you walk among us, that you see into every heart, you gaze into every mind, you observe every thought, you are witness to every action, Lord, that we engage in. And Father, I think all, we, a lot of us, we just... We engage in so many different things and entertain so many different thoughts because we don't keep you first and foremost in our minds and in our hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen our faith today. Lord, I pray you'd strengthen our faith, but show us what kind of a faith it is that you're looking for. Father, show us what kind of a faith it is that makes you marvel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the text starts off, it says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. And of course, Jesus' response to the centurion is he's going to heal the paralyzed servant at home. And we understand from the ministry of Christ that he came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, so that we would ultimately one day be permanently and totally healed in the resurrection and be reunited with God the Father forever. But during that time, while he was here on this earth, he was also focused on meeting the actual physical needs of those around him, serving them and ministering to them and and trying to alleviate their suffering. When I was living in College Station, there were two ministries that I was involved in. Uh, that I, every week, 
participated in. One was the gospel mission, similar to the New Life mission, what we have here in town. It was basically like a soup kitchen, and it was like a food pantry, and uh, they did a lot of things for the poor and, and the less fortunate. And then, of course, the other ministry that I was serving in, uh, we were, I was part of the pro-life movement, and we were trying to educate individuals about the reality of what's taking place in the womb and, and trying to stand up against abortion. So those are the two ministries that I, uh, I was really actively involved in. And I don't know if I've shared this with you, but while we were in College Bryan, Texas, College Station Bryan, Texas, the abortion clinic was on 29th Street, and um, we worked every day to create awareness and to promote awareness, and every Wednesday, that's when they actually performed abortions, and we would stand out there on the street and just pray for these kids that were being killed. And it's so heart-wrenching to see car after car going to the parking lot, and you know what's going on in there. And so this is about 10 years ago, 2000, 2003, and I remember praying, God, would you stop this? Would you stop the murdering of innocent children? And I honestly, I prayed that prayer not thinking that it would ever be answered in my lifetime. But July 28th of 2013, that clinic, along with about 36 others in the state of Texas, were closed down. As a result of legislation that was passed requiring certain health standards, cleanliness of certain instruments, uh, mandating certain, certain things. And, and uh, one of the things they mandated was you had to perform a sonogram and show the mother the sonogram before she could consent to having an abortion. And uh, that, that killed the abortion business overnight. Um, sonograms are undeniable. And so... When I heard that news this year, in 2003, I was praying, and I didn't think God would ever actually close the doors on that clinic, but I asked for it. And then when you hear 10 years later that he did close the doors on that clinic, you realize in 2003 you were talking to the Father and you were saying, Lord, will you please do something about this? And even though you don't see the answer coming, you don't know the timeline, you don't know what it's going to look like, and your expectations may be that it will go on forever, the Lord already had an answer in his mind. There was already a date, an hour, and a minute fixed in his mind for when those things would end. And so I need you guys to know that when you pray, when you talk to God, you're talking to a real person who really hears you, and he has a purpose to answer your prayers. The question is, do we have the faith to take our concerns before him? Do we have the faith to lean on him and to trust him that he is going to meet our needs? The other organization that I was a part of was the gospel mission. Like I said, it's similar to New Life Mission. They uh, did a number of things. They, they, uh, it was like a soup kitchen. They also had a, a banquet, uh, like a, a, a room where you could go and get clothes. They called it the clothes banquet, clothing banquet, and you could go in there and, and get different clothes and, and different things of that nature. And as I worked with this group of people, over time I began to realize that these individuals loved the Lord, talked a lot about the Lord, but they didn't really seem too interested in going to church on Sundays. They didn't seem interested in going to church on Sundays. And as I got to know them more and as we began to work more together, there was sort of this 
hostility almost that I sensed in many of them towards the church in terms of we're doing the Lord's work and the church is not. We're actively involved in meeting the needs of the downtrodden and the oppressed and the church is not. And I was involved in a church. My wife and I attended faithfully every Sunday, and I was involved in this, this uh, mission. And I, I would read the Bible. And over and over and over again, there's no denying it, that Jesus wants you to be involved in attending a church. At the same time, there's no denying it, that Jesus wants you to be involved in serving the poor and the downtrodden. And I saw almost two distinct groups here in which you have people that attended church on Sundays, but outside of Sundays, it didn't really seem that their faith impacted the way they lived. And then you had this other group of individuals that Monday to Fridays, they were actively involved in meeting the needs and doing a lot of different things, but their faith didn't seem to compel them to need to go to church on Sundays. So it was just sort of an interesting dichotomy. Now, as we approach this text this morning... I want you to have this question in your mind. What does true faith look like? What areas of your life does it touch? And what areas of your life do you need to allow your faith in God to start touching? Look with me at the text, beginning in verse 5. Now, he is performing all kinds of miracles. He's healing everybody. He's doing everything. It's amazing. It says in verse 5, he comes to Capernaum. A centurion approaches him. What is a centurion? Well, it's kind of like a marine. It's a soldier. It's a guy who's going to go out and fight wars. In this day and age, you had the Roman Empire, and they, were, they, they ruled their empire by use of legions. A legion consisted of about 6,000 men, and it was divided up into what they called 60 centuries. That is, 60 groups of 100 men. That was the basic unit of a legion within the Roman army. Those 60 centuries, those 60 groups of 100 men, were governed by a centurion. This is the regular standing soldier. All the guys inside of a century, the regular old sort of private first class types of guys, they would come and go. It was compulsory within the Roman Empire. If you were not a citizen, you were a lot of the times compelled to serve two years minimum. But then you had these centurions, and they served long term. And the morale and the well-being of the legion depended upon these 60 centurions governing well over their 60 or their 100 guys that they were presiding over. And so the centurions, anywhere you encounter a centurion within the scriptures, you find the Bible universally all across the board has nothing negative to say about them. In every centurion we encounter in the scriptures, the Bible really thinks highly of them. You encounter the centurion in the book of Acts on two separate occasions. You encounter him in the Gospels on two separate occasions. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's Paul that's meeting a centurion, one thing we see clearly, these are men of honor. They're men of integrity. They do what is right. They obey their orders. So they are people who do what they're told, and they're also people who are fair. And that seems to be perfectly legitimate, considering the fact that they have a whole group of 100 men that are serving in a military force compulsory. It's not voluntary service. A lot of these guys are ordered to serve. They have to serve. Now, you want to be the strongest empire in the world. You want to have the biggest, baddest military force in the whole world. And your military force is consisting mostly of guys who have to serve against their will. You're going to need a really good guy to motivate them to boost their morale, to treat them fairly, to make sure they get a fair shake. Otherwise, your empire isn't going to stand. 
because your forces aren't going to obey orders. So every time we encounter a centurion in the Gospels, these guys are legit. Now what is even more significant as we encounter this particular centurion, he has regard for his slave. It says in the text, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The ESV renders it servant. The Greek word there is doulos. This is a slave. This is a guy who is assigned to him. He, he owns this person. He gets to do whatever he wants. A couple of different scholars writing from this period in history commenting on what a slave was worth. Polybius, Greek historian, writing this about slaves, uh, sorry, he was writing this, uh, sorry, not Polybius, Aristotle, writing this about slaves, made the statement, there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Aristotle is a philosopher, and he's talking about the nature of friendships and the nature of relationships. He's saying, if you're a guy and and, uh, you want to have a friendship, you can't have a friendship towards an inanimate object. There's nothing in common there. He goes on, he says, there can be no friendship towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, which makes sense. Horses and oxes, animals, they're different than us. We can't really have much of a relationship there. But then Aristotle adds this interesting comment. Indeed, there cannot be friendship towards a horse or an ox, yet nor towards a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This culture has no regard for slaves. They don't care about slaves. Slaves are just tools, objects that you use to get the job done. Gaius, the ancient Roman legal expert in his Institutes of Roman Law, makes this comment. We may note that it is universally accepted throughout the empire that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. No such cases of murder involving slaves need be brought before a Roman court. In other words, if you own a slave, you can kill them if you want. They're property. You own them. So if you want to kill your cow and feed your family, so be it. If your slave disobeys you and you don't like that, you can kill him and be done with him. This is the view of this culture. No regard for slaves. So we encounter this centurion. We encounter this Roman officer in the Roman military. He comes to Jesus and he says, I've got a slave. I've got personal property But you get the idea that as far as the centurion is concerned, he doesn't look at his slave that way because he's concerned for his servant. He comes to Jesus. He travels to Jesus. He finds him out. He searches him out. He says, I need you to heal my servant. He's concerned for the well-being of those who work in his house. So this is a good guy. And of course, you know Jesus' response, I will go and heal him. No debate, no deliberation. Let's go. Now, a centurion says to him, I'm not worthy for you to enter my home. And he goes on to say, he says, For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one 
in Israel have I found such faith. This guy's a believer in the best possible way. His faith causes Jesus, the author and the founder and the perfecter of our faith, to stop and marvel. Jesus makes a statement in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me tell you what Jesus says. He says, you got east and you got west. You got Gentiles from all over the world. And I'm telling you, in the final day, at the last moment, you're going to have Gentiles from every different country, every type of tribe, every nation. They're going to come into the kingdom of heaven. They're going to sit down with the patriarchs of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're going to sit down at the banquet table of God, and they're going to enjoy the blessings and the benefits of heaven. But you need to know something. The people who know their Bible, the people who know their Old Testament, who go to the synagogues every Saturday, who worship me faithfully every week, week in and week out, guess what? The sons of the kingdom, the people who know their scriptures, who should be very familiar with what it is to believe in me and trust in me, they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. His statement is, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about guys going to heaven and people going to hell. He is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience with a Gentile Roman soldier that approaches him, asking him to do a favor for his servant. And Jesus' response is, this is so amazing. This guy's going to make it, and a lot of these other guys are not. What is the difference between the Jewish faith and the centurion's faith. And what kind of a faith do we have here today as we look at this text? The response is found in verse 8 and 9, and this makes the difference. This is the essence of the centurion's faith. He says, Lord, number one, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, I know that when you speak, things happen. Just say the word. I don't need you to perform any kind of weird ritual. You don't necessarily have to lay your hands on him. You just speak. And with the authority of what you say, I know everything can be changed. You don't have to travel all the way back to my house. You just say the word. Why is that important? Well, number one, because I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. The first thing that he says is, I am not worthy. When I look at the Father, when I look at God, and when I understand how perfect and how awesome and how amazing he is, I do not deserve for you, the Son of God, to come into my home. The centurion understands who he is as a person. He's not self-deceived. He's not telling himself, I'm not such a bad guy. Yeah, okay, I'm not perfect. I've made a few. He understands perfectly that when he compares himself to the only standard that matters, which is Jesus Christ, he is not worthy. 
there is no reason why he deserves to have Jesus enter his house. Then he makes the next statement, verse 9. He knows that he can do it with a word. How does he know that? Verse 9 says, for. Now, that in the Greek text is gar, and, and that connects what he's about to say to what he has just said. What he has just said is, you can just do it with a word. How do I know this? I know this because of my own life situation. Well, what is the centurion's life situation? He makes a statement. He says, I am a man under authority. I, too, am a man under authority. Now, let's understand what the centurion's role is. He is the backbone of the Roman military. He is the backbone of the Roman army. The centurion is the direct representative of Caesar. He honors the commander of the legion, and then he honors the Caesar, whomever that happens to be, who is in charge of the legions. There are two individuals who have authority over the centurion, the legionnaire and Caesar. And so when the centurion says, you can just say the word, he says that based upon his knowledge of how he operates. I am under the authority of this guy, and I've got guys under authority under my authority. And so when I tell my guy to do this, he does it. When I tell this guy to come here, he obeys and he comes. And guess what? It's the same with me. When the legionnaire or Caesar says to me, come, I go. When he says, do this, I do it. In fact, when the legion or the Caesar, when the legionnaire or Caesar gives me a command and I issue those commands to my soldiers, I'm speaking in the authority of Caesar. He says, Jesus, I know that you can just say the word and my servant will be healed because I'm under the authority of Caesar just like you are under authority. But we know Jesus is not under Caesar's authority. So what's the centurion saying? He's saying, Jesus, I know you are the son of God under the authority of the Father. Just like you're under his authority, I understand perfectly that you have people serving you. You've got angels serving you. You're under his authority. You're doing what the Father says. And I know because you're under his authority and you obey the Father, angels, servants, disciples, you just say the word and I know you can make this happen because I do the same thing in my own line of profession, my own line of work. And when Jesus hears that, that makes him marvel. Why? Centurion recognizes that what Jesus says has authority over things seen and unseen. He understands Jesus is under the authority of one not seen and that he can just say a word and this world will change based upon what Jesus says. Now this whole book is what Jesus has to say to us today. Everything in this Bible is the Son speaking to us. And he says, we need to be caring for the poor and the downtrodden. He says we need to be taking care of sick people. We need to be looking after people who are struggling with diseases. 
And he also says, we need to care for people inside the church. And we need to worship him on a Sunday. And all too often what we encounter is people who like to pick and choose this and say, yeah, this is good. I'm going to stand under the authority of this. I'm going to do this. And you mention another passage and I'm like, well, I know what the Bible says, but that's the most common rebuttal. I'm going to stand under the authority of Christ in this area, but this area of my life doesn't have to be under the authority of Christ. I want you to flip with me to Exodus chapter 20. And I want to show you a statement that puzzles when you first encounter it. It's definitely unusual. When you first read it, it sounds contradictory. It really does. But there's significance to it. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses is uh, giving the Ten Commandments. He's on Mount Sinai. It's a pretty dramatic encounter. The mountain is smoking. There's earthquakes. There's rumblings. There's trem- tremblings. And, and the people of Israel are afraid. They're like, they're like concerned because this is just a crazy awesome sight. Makes a statement. If you want to turn with me, look. It says Matthew, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20. Look, verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, this thing was on fire. God has come down from heaven to speak with his people, and the whole mountain is lit up on fire, smoking, shaking. It's a crazy, awesome sight. The people see this, and they're freaking out. Understandably, I would too. I'm sure you would too. So they're concerned. And uh, Moses makes this statement. It says, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. In other words, they didn't want to come too close. And they make the statement to Moses, say, you, you, speak, to, you speak to us, and we'll listen to you. But we, we don't want God to speak to us lest we die. Their response is, okay, we see all this stuff happening, and the deal was they were supposed to come up on the mountain and worship God with Moses. They see all this stuff happening, and they're afraid, and they say, ah, you know, we've really, we're, we're just kind of looking at this whole situation, and it seems like it'd be a better deal if you just go up on the mountain and you talk to God, and then you can tell us what he says, and that, that'll work for us. Like, we, we can play the game of telephone here. Rather than seeing God face-to-face, you just, you just take care of it. That's how afraid they were. Now, look at Moses' response. Moses, verse 20, makes this statement, do not fear. Don't be afraid. I know it looks bad, but don't be afraid. He says, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Now, now just step back and, and think about the statement that Moses says. He says, don't be afraid. God has shown up so that you'll be afraid. What? That does not make any sense. Don't be afraid. The whole reason God is here is so that you'll be afraid. Now, why would Moses say that? What's he getting at here? What he is saying is God is showing you a part of him that is ultimately for your good. Well, what's the good that it's supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to make you afraid. And since you know that, you should now see that and not be afraid. Now, on his face, that's kind of weird. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But now look at the last line here. Look at what Moses says. He says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Don't be afraid. God has come to show you to yourself. He makes a statement, God has come to test you. Now, why does God need to test you? When you are in school and you're taking exams, your professors or your teachers hand you an exam and you have to fill out the exam like you guys do in high school, the point of that is so they can assess how much you've learned and whether or not you're ready to go on to the next 
subject or whether you're ready to go on the next topic. And so they give you an exam to sort of assess what you know because they themselves don't know how much you guys have been paying attention or how much you've been listening. So this is, this is the, 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 the period of testing. Ah, I'm t- tongue-tied today. This is the period of testing in which they get to say, okay, how good of a job have I done as a teacher? And how much do you guys really know? Now, the teacher doesn't know. The teacher is not omniscient. They've lectured up front all week long. They've written all this stuff out here on the chalkboard. You've pretended to take notes while secretly you're probably passing notes to the person next to you. And they haven't seen all that, and so they're going to just find out, okay, what's really going on here? Here's a test. Here's the difference between a high school teacher and God the Father. God the Father doesn't need to test you to know what's going on inside your heart. He already knows exactly what's going on inside your heart. Now, the benefit of a test for the student is twofold. Number one, it doesn't just show the teacher what the student does and doesn't know. It shows the student what the student does or doesn't know. In other words, it shows you to yourself. So Moses' statement is, we got the Ten Commandments, the, mo- the mountain is smoking. They're like, we're afraid. He says, don't be afraid. God is showing you to your Self. Now they are observing a mountain that is just shaking and on fire, and it is awesome, and they're afraid. And Moses says, Don't be afraid. God wants to show you to yourself. In other words, don't be thinking that you're the same as God. Can you make mountains smoke? No. Can you make things light on fire, solid rock light on fire? No. Can you speak with the sound of thunder? No. Are you God? No, you're not. So when you see him, you're afraid because you are not him. He is way more awesome and way more powerful than you. And he wants you to know that. The proper response when you encounter the living God is one of fear, but he doesn't want you to be afraid. He shows you to yourself by showing himself to you so that when you see him, you will not sin. That's the statement right here. You won't sin. This isn't so that you'll live your life in fear, but that you will enjoy maximum happiness. That's what God wants from you. Now, I want you to leave Exodus behind. I want you to flip with me to one more passage. Go to Psalm 147. Flip over to Psalm 147, verse 10. The psalmist writing in Psalm 147 makes this statement. His delight, this is 147.10, speaking about God. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure, now look at this verse, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, those are statements which are written together in the same verse and appear contradictory. How do you hope in someone you're terrified of? How do you believe in someone that scares you to death? The centurion approaches Jesus and he says, no, don't come into my house. I'm not worthy for it, but I know who you are. And because I know who you are, I believe you can make my servant well. 
The centurion has fear, but hope. The guys encounter God on Mount Sinai. They have fear, and Moses' instruction is, don't be afraid. Hope in him. And so the question becomes, how do we reconcile this tension between fear and hope? I want you to just imagine yourself for a second climbing on a glacier. Say you're climbing the glaciers up at Jasper in the national park up there. And you're, you're there in the middle of the winter and you're just enjoying yourself. It's just, just beautiful. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, a tremendous winter storm blows in. You've been winter hiking, winter camping. And this tremendous, powerful force of nature just blows in. There's gusting wind and raging, raging snowstorms and and you feel for a fact that as you're gripping the side of this glacier that the winds and the snow is going to rip you from the side of the mountain and you're going to fall to your death. And you're just kind of clinging. And in that moment, you realize, I'm in a bad spot and I could die here. And as you're clinging to the side of this glacier, you find a little crevice in the side of the mountain. And you're able to squeeze in this crevice and it's nice and cozy in there and you're not going to fall and you're safe from the winds and All of a sudden, all fear of dying is removed. You've found shelter in the middle of the storm, and yet you are still able to gaze out upon the storm. But now where you are gripped with fear, you see the power and the intensity of the storm, but you are sheltered from it. Now instead of fear, you look at it with awe and amazement. And that's your response to the storm. That's what real faith looks like, church. Real faith looks at God as someone awesome and powerful who has the right to command our life for our joy and our blessing. Faith looks at God and says, this is someone who is way, way more awesome than me, whom I owe my respect and my reverence. And yet ultimately, Because of who he is, he shelters me from his storm. I fear in him. And that fear is changed to hope when I believe in him. That's what true faith is. It has to balance both of those things. It can't be one without the other. If you have faith in God and you have love for God, but you don't have fear for God, then your love for God turns into this sort of sappy, smarmy, God is love, God is peace, he's just going to you know, let everybody go into heaven, and then it completely ignores and removes the fact that he is righteous and that there is justice in who he is. And then the other side of it makes you a fatalist. Because when you really understand how holy and how awesome and how righteous God is, you realize you'll never measure up. True faith says, I know who he is. And because of who he is, I fear him, I surrender to him, and he will protect me. He'll meet my needs. We get an idea from this text as we look at the centurion, as he encounters Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy, but please help me. I'm not worthy. I fear you even coming into my home, but please help me. And hope turns his fear into trembling and peaceful wonder. He's able to observe the power of a man at a safe distance. Fear takes everything trivial out of hope. It makes hope earnest and profound. If there's nothing to fear, then why would you need to hope in the first place? 
The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. Because of how awesome he is, we delight in him. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm howls outside. I I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to sit by an ice warm fire and just to watch the cold raging storm blowing outside. You wouldn't want to be out in that, but yet there's just something really sweet about watching the power of that thing going on outside while you enjoy the sweet fellowship of friends and family by a warm fire, protected and safe from it. That's what true faith in God is. It embraces both sides of it. As I reflect back on the people working at Gospel Mission and the people attending Central Baptist Church, God's care is for everyone, both inside and outside the church. He loves everyone, both inside and outside the church. And he speaks to us. We have to have commitments both inside and outside the church. His word is authority. He is under authority. Are we under his authority? Because when we see him as a God that is awesome and fearful, and we recognize that he loves us so much that he died on the cross to remove all the fear, we can still appreciate his power and yet trust and hope in his goodness. But he's still God. He's still in charge. And we still have an obligation to obey him because in doing so, we are healed. We are made right. And we enjoy the finest blessings in life. Jesus is a man under authority. He obeyed the Father, becoming obedient even to the point of death. That's the calling on us as Christians. Let's bow for a word of prayer.